the moral state of our nation is shocking. If we want God to bless us, we must return to him now. Our morals need to be reformed. Our God needs to be put in his rightful place. We should follow his law in every aspect of our lives, not just in grand gestures. We should be shining lights in our world. We need to stand up against those who teach there is no heaven, no supernatural. Correct those who misuse God's name, God's day. No compromise, no surrender, no turning back. This was the view of the Pharisees. In our heads, they were probably more like pantomime villains. You know, they arrive and everyone starts booing and, you, you know, he's behind you. Uh, we see them as, as the enemy. But actually, in reality, in history, they were a lot closer to us than we care to admit. They took a stand against the liberals of their day. We read them as the Sadducees in the Bible. They actually taught people God's word. And they sought to live in a moral way. Yet Jesus' criticism of this group is harsher than for any other group that he talks to. In our passage today before us, Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee, an important one. We don't know that Pharisee's name. We don't know where he lives. But all the action uh, in our passage this morning happens at this Pharisee's house. All four distinct stories take place where he lives. And as we listen, let's not all shout boo straight away. Let's not be saying... Okay, yeah, with these are the baddies, these are the ones that we shouldn't be like, and go, well, this is their problem. Actually, as we read this, we need to be careful, because let's, let's acknowledge it, these are the guys that were close to us. Actually, if we're going to have any problem, really, in this church, I think it's more likely that we'll be the problems of the Pharisees. We've got to be careful, haven't we, not to read this and go, I thank God that I'm not like them, because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. So actually, we need to acknowledge this morning that there might be little Pharisees living inside every one of us. As Bible-believing Christians, this is probably our biggest danger. And if you're here investigating Christianity this morning, you don't get out of this either. Being a Pharisee might be more common in churches and in church circles, but it's by no means exclusive. Little Pharisees exist everywhere. So listen in and see if you've got a little Pharisee living somewhere deep inside you. So in our passage, we find out four things about the Pharisees. The first thing we find out is that they care more about precepts than people. I'll read to you again verses 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to teach on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus is at this Pharisee's house. It's probably an after-synagogue lunch, a bit like the way on a Sunday you might have people back to your house uh, for a meal. But we've got to ask the question, why is Jesus at this Pharisee's house? We found out some things about the Pharisees, and they were not big fans of Jesus. So on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there there's Luke 6, verse 7. This has already happened in Luke's Gospel. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. 
So the Pharisees are actively looking to accuse Jesus. And we've already had this issue of the Sabbath raised. And then Luke 11, uh, 63 and 64, or sorry, 53 and 54. uh, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait to catch him in something he might say. So the Pharisees actually are out to get him. As we read that he's at a Pharisee's house, that actually is not necessarily a positive thing. It's not saying the Pharisee really likes him. And we see, don't we, in our passage that the Pharisees in verse 1 are watching him carefully. They're out to get him. The other person that's a bit of a surprise at this meal, though, is the man suffering from dropsy. Now, I had to look up what dropsy was uh, and then found out that it's edema. And then I had to look at what edema was. <laughs> um, but apparently it's a, it's a term for the swelling of soft tissues due to the accumulation of excess water. So apparently if, you, if you've got this condition, you sort of swell in your face or in your arms or legs. Often it's the, the lower body. And if you press your finger into it, the, the mark sort of stays. It's, it's a very unpleasant condition. And it's often linked with insatiable thirst. Apparently if you've got this, because your body's taking in all the water and putting it uh, in different parts of your body, you can feel very, very thirsty. So the idea of dropsy in the old world was a sort of inquenchable thirst. Uh, a thirst that could never be quenched. And it was linked with greed in the old world often, because this idea of you just keep wanting more and more and more. So dropsy is a really awful illness. But it's not life-threatening, as far as I can see, not in its immediate, uh, immediate symptoms. It's not an urgent case. It does cause a lot of suffering, it does cause a lot of discomfort, and the people who had it would be outcasts from that society. But it's not life-threatening, it's not urgent. So if he's an outcast, if people might link him with things like greed and being under God's judgment, why is he here at a Pharisee's tea party? Well, there are three options, aren't there, really? One is that Jesus brought him. The second is that the Pharisees brought him. Or the third is that the man just turned up. Now, Jesus bringing him is a bit unlikely. It's a bit like in our world. You can't really invite guests to other people's houses. Uh, It's not the way that it's done. But the Pharisee bringing him is unlikely as well. As you read later in the passage, the Pharisees are going to be criticised for not inviting outcasts to their meals. So it's more likely that this man just turned up, wasn't invited, but came along, heard that Jesus could heal him. We know, don't we, from the rest of Luke's Gospel and the other Gospels, that people crowded round Jesus and would often interrupt him. But here we see the Pharisees, they're watching Jesus. They want to see whether he heals him on the Sabbath. Here is actually quite a dangerous situation. It's a bit of a trap, really, for Jesus. Now, the issue here, really, isn't the healing so much, but the Sabbath. Christians have different legitimate positions on the Sabbath. But whatever your position on the Sabbath... Healing on the Sabbath was not against the Old Testament law. Jesus is not actually breaking the Sabbath here as the Bible describes it. What he is breaking is the Pharisees' interpretation of the Sabbath. The Pharisees created rules and laws around the Bible. There was sort of a hedge to protect themselves from actually breaking the laws. And again, we, we sort of make this negative, but all of us do this to some degree. So, for example, you might decide... Um, that you don't drink any alcohol. And the reason being that you don't want to get drunk. Now that's not a biblical command, not to drink any alcohol. 
But it might be sensible for some people. But do we then make that a rule and impose it on other people? Well, that's what the Pharisees did. They, they made up these extra rules and then imposed them on other people. Or perhaps if you decide in your family, in your house, you're not going to watch anything above a 12 rated film. Again, that might be a wise decision. But if you then say, right, well, this is a rule that everybody else has to obey, and you look down on people who don't keep your rules and do your things, that's when it becomes dangerous. That's when you're being a Pharisee. So you see, these people cared more about their own man-made rules and standards than they did about people. You see, the Pharisees here, not only are they helpless and powerless to help him, but they're actually trying to work against his healing. They're happy for Jesus just to move on without healing him. They don't want him to heal on the Sabbath. So actually, their own man-made rules get in the way of helping people, people made in God's image. Now, we must care about God's law as Christians. But listen to what Paul writes about God's law in Romans 13, uh, 9, uh, 9, 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Or again in Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus himself said, didn't he, that uh, the two greatest commandments were to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbour as yourself. So here is the question for the Pharisees, as they're so bothered about keeping God's law, to quote, will I am, where is the love in what they're doing? They've got the laws, but where is the love in their action? They're actually working against this man being healed. They're not thinking about loving their neighbour, they're thinking about their own rules, they're thinking about not loving, about harming by not allowing Jesus to heal. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy, doesn't he? Uh, there uh, in verse uh, 5. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox, that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Their own rules allowed them to help an ox. But they wouldn't allow him to help a person who was ill. And he's saying, what hypocrisy. You can help an animal but you're saying that I can't heal this person. But before again we point the finger at the Pharisees, can we be guilty of this? Caring more about our own moral code than people? Now I'm not going all relativistic on you. There are rules in Christianity. Whilst Christianity is all about relationship, (coughs) there are rules. But that doesn't negate the fact that it's all about relationship. I'm married to Caroline. That's a loving relationship. But there are still rules within that relationship, aren't there? No cheating, no beating. You might want to sum it up that way. There are more, but that's, that's basically it. As Christians, there is a godliness that accords with sound doctrine. There is a right way to live. Part of that motivation is our love for God and our love for our neighbour. But too often churches have lots of laws and not a lot of love. And that can be destructive, can't it? And it exposes our own hearts. Do we really care about people or do we care about our own rules? If we care about people, then we'll hold our extra biblical standards, ones that don't come directly from the Bible, we'll hold them lightly. 
Not imposing our man-made rules on other people. Because we need to think, do we want to actually care for people? Or do we want to control people? There's a world of difference between the two, isn't there? Is our motive love for that person? Or is it love for our own rules? And what about in our own hearts, the way that we look at this? Do we see our life with God as being primarily about rules that we keep? Or a relationship that we share in? If it's about rules, then we'll base our Christian experience on the rules that we make. Did I have a quiet time today? Did I go to life group this week? Did I keep my own rules? Oh, I kept my rules this week. Wow, how blessed am I going to be? It's possible, isn't it, to, to keep all the rules and not be in a real living relationship. Not every husband who doesn't cheat or beat his wife is in a loving relationship with her. We want to say that's the bare minimum, wouldn't we? But we, there's far more to a relationship than just keeping a couple of rules. And that's the mistake the Pharisees made. They thought, right, we'll keep the rules and that's the relationship. It's a bit like uh, the story told of two uh, sons who went away to university. Uh, and one of them did a load of wild living and crazy stuff and, you know, never, um, uh, never really lived up to his parents' expectation. But every week he would ring home and he would speak to his parents. He'd regret what he did every so often and, and come back home and, and spend time with them. The other son kept all their rules. He would do exactly as they told him. He'd study hard, but he'd never ring home, never speak to his parents. When he came home, he treated them more like their, his bank manager than his parents. Which of those children loved their parents? It's possible, isn't it, that we can keep rules without actually loving the person who gave the rules. So rules don't equal relationship. So we mustn't rate ourselves by our own rules. And we mustn't rate others by our own rules either. When we rate others by our own rules, we make ourselves Pharisees. And we show that we care more about precepts than we do about people. The second thing that we see is that they care more about position than piety. That's verses 7 to 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honour, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honour, lest someone more distinguished than you will be invited, uh, sorry, than you, um, you'll be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take, your, take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Firstly, we've got to see that Jesus takes notes of how they're sitting uh, at this feast that uh, the Pharisee is giving. And uh, meals in their culture were a bit more like wedding uh, receptions for us. So it gives the example of a wedding feast here, but all meals would sort of work along those lines. Uh, I'm sure if you've got married, you've had the nightmare of the seating plan. Do you remember that? Trying to work out where everyone's going to sit, who can't go on the same table as somebody else, who's going to go on the top table, uh, all those sorts of, you know, can't sit great Auntie Marjorie with Uncle uh, Ronnie because they'll fall out or, you know, all those sorts of things. But the big decision really is who is on the top table. That can cause uh, all sorts of problems if you get that wrong. 
And here it seems as though everybody's wrangling for seats at the top table. That's basically what is going on. And Jesus tells them a parable. Not so much a story, but a worked example of what he's been teaching. And it reads a bit like a story, doesn't it? So he's saying, imagine that you're at a wedding feast. So just for us, imagine wedding reception. The meal's about to start. Everyone's watching the bride. Oh, doesn't she look lovely? As she sits down with the groom, they take their seats on the top table. And then their old next door neighbours plus one comes and sits themselves down on the top table next to the bride and the groom. And there's that sort of awkward silence, isn't there? Everyone not quite knowing what to do. I mean, they it's touch and go whether they invited this person at all. And here they are now sat on the top table. You're going to get that situation where somebody's going to nudge an usher and say, you know, you need to do it. It's always the ushers that have to do it, isn't it? Go up and, and sort of whisper in her ear, you know, you need to need to move. Awkward, isn't it? And it would be humiliating, wouldn't it, for that woman to have to stand up in front of everyone and go and, and take a seat uh, further down. So that's what he's saying. That's, that's one scenario. Now imagine, same scenario. It's the wedding. The bride and groom are sitting down. And just as they're about to sit down, they say, Where, where's Joan? Where's Joan? Joan is an old family friend. And they see her standing at the back. Come on, come on up, Joan. We can make room. They sort of make everyone sort of squidge up a bit on the top table and sit her on the top table. And she's honoured, isn't she, in front of everyone. That's the situation that it's showing us here. Now, it sounds like just good advice, doesn't it? You know, if you're going to a wedding, don't sit at the top table unless you've been invited to sit at the top table. Uh, but there's something, uh, a bit of a sting in the tail, isn't there? Have a look at verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a broader point here. He's not just giving you good advice for going to a wedding. He's saying all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And this is what Jesus is really getting at as he speaks to the Pharisees. He's saying these Pharisees have an overinflated sense of their own importance. That's what he's saying. They think they all deserve a place at the top table, whether it be at a dinner party or whether it be with God. They want the top spot. They see themselves as above the hoi polloi. And guess what the Pharisees are thinking? Hey, table, this table thing sounds a good idea. I know what I'll do. That's really good advice, Jesus. What I'll do, I'll sit right at the back now so I get put in my rightful place. Yeah? I'll fake humility to get what I really deserve. That cross your mind? Because something much bigger is going on here, isn't it? He's talking about their humility, how they see themselves. If they exalt themselves, God will humble them in this life or the next an overinflated sense of your own importance is a really bad thing to have, isn't it? And it can show itself in two ways. I think uh, it's certainly in our circles. It can show itself uh, if we see people uh, as important. Um, sorry, if people see us as important as we think we are, so people look at us and we think we're important, and they think we're important, then uh, we won't be surprised when others praise us. We'll be expecting it, won't we? We'll think, yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah, they've, they've done a good job here. And yeah, I'm expecting the praise. And we'll become proud. But if people don't see us as important as we think that we are, then actually that will show itself in often self-depreciating comments. 
You know what I mean? So they'll say, oh, I'm rubbish at this. Expecting someone to say, oh, no, you're not. And when those comments don't come, then it can lead to sadness and bitterness, can't it? Often that seems like humility, saying, oh, I'm I'm not good at this. But actually, deep inside, they're expecting you to contradict them. But actually, again, it's an overinflated sense of their own importance. Just a a different, uh, different way, because people aren't acknowledging it in the same way when you get proud. So how can we spot this in ourselves? Well, if we find ourselves talking down others more than praising them, that's a sign that you've got this Pharisee problem. If we find ourselves disappointed when we're not being noticed for all our hard work, then we've probably got this problem. If we think we've got everything right, and all who disagree just don't understand, then chances are we've got a little Pharisee inside of us. They weren't bothered about true humility and piety. Really, what they were bothered about, position. They saw themselves as above other people. Where am I compared to everybody else? Mentally destroying people in their own heads, just so that even in their own heads, they could be above them. Now, you might think it's a cultural thing for us, uh, you know, no praising. Uh, It's a bit of a British thing to moan, isn't it, to our neighbours? I'm sorry, not moan to our neighbours, moan about our neighbours. Probably moan to them as well. Um, It is a British thing to moan about our neighbours, but it's a Christian thing to love our neighbours. And that takes precedence. So if we care more about position than piety, then we're being at Pharisees. Thirdly, they care more about politics than the poor. Have a look at verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now when I say they care more about politics than the poor, I mean politics in the broadest sense. So you know, office politics, school politics, family politics, the art of making friends and manipulating people, uh, somebody once put it. They care more about scratching each other's backs than actually those who are scratching to make a living. This is why it's unlikely that that man with dropsy was actually invited by the Pharisees. They weren't interested in the outcast. They were only interested in people who could help them in their own lives. Instead of loving people, they used people, those who could offer things in return. And meals for the Pharisees were all about politics, who you invite, who you don't invite. And Jesus' list here of who they would invite normally, their friends, their brothers, relatives... It doesn't seem too unreasonable, does it? We probably think that the rich neighbours sounds a bit suspicious. But friends and family, well, I imagine that's the vast majority of people that we invite into our homes. Now, I should say here that Jesus isn't attacking hospitality. We must practice hospitality as Christians. Romans 12:13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's even put down as a qualifying character of an elder. So 1 Timothy 3, 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. 
So if you're aspiring to be an, an elder and you don't regularly open your home to others, you're actually disqualifying yourself. So important is this act of hospitality. But what Jesus is attacking is the politics that accompanies hospitality. So a wrong application of this, if you were thinking about becoming an elder, a wrong application would be, right, I want to be an elder, so we need to start inviting people round. And in fact, we need to invite the key individuals round, uh, you know, the, the right couples round. A good application of this might be, I need to start in pe- inviting people round regardless of their status, or their ability to pay me back, or their ability to help me get on. Jesus is telling them not to play the world's game of politics. Instead, invite people round who will not help you get on in this world. In Jesus' day, that was the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Those who are not able to repay you. Jesus is very concerned here, you see, that our good deeds are not repaid in this life. That's why a lot of you know that I I often say, I'm thankful for your service rather than thank you. Because I don't want to rob you of your reward in the life to come. Instead, we see if they're not repaid, it says in verse 14, they will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, in the age to come. There's a reward for them not playing the world's game, but offering hospitality to people who can never pay them back. Well, who might this be for us? Because actually, you notice politicians often, they, they invite the poor, the lame, all those different people, actually to make themselves look good. They actually do it to, to get on in life. Who could it be for us? Well, it could be people at church. Those who don't normally get an invite round to people's houses. Might be new people. Might be people who are overlooked. Might be that person or couple that you've had over a dozen times and has never had you over back in return. That's exactly what Jesus is speaking of, isn't it? Might be that person that you've never spoken to. Might be that person who can't afford a meal at the moment. It might be putting food in the food bank box at the back. Sort of giving from a distance in a way that you won't be repaid. It may also be the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. But if you don't know any of those people, if you don't know people who are blind or, or, or crippled, don't let that stop you inviting anybody. It's not saying if you can't invite these people, don't invite anybody. But equally, don't invite those people to make yourself look good. That will end up being your reward. You'll look good but you'll get nothing at the resurrection of the just. So you can invite anyone so long as you're not doing it for that invite-return game. So long as you're not playing the world's game of politics. So don't just invite your friends. Practice true hospitality. The word hospitality in the Bible is xenophilia. Xeno, we have in our word xenophobia, and philia we have in all sorts of different words. Um, But it means to love. The love, the stranger, the foreigner. So don't host as the world does, as the Pharisees did, caring more about politics than the poor. And then the last thing we find out about the Pharisees is that they won't make it to the feast. Verses 15 to 24. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the, as the time for the banquet... Uh, He sent for his servant to say to those who had already been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five oak of yoxen. Uh, Yoxen? (laughs) 
five yoke of oxen. <laughs> yoxen. Uh, and uh, I go to examine them. You would examine them if you've got yoxen. Um, please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And when the servant said, Sir, what have you commanded has been done? And still there is room. And the master said to the servants, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So one of the Pharisees at the table, he says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now what he seems there, that seems quite a positive statement. It seems as though he's endorsing uh, Jesus. Uh, he's looking forward to the resurrection of the righteous. But Jesus gives him a bit of a reality check. You see, this guy assumes that he is going to be there. He said, oh, wouldn't it be great to eat bread in the resurrection? So Jesus tells him this story. And the scene is another banquet. We can presume from the person's comments that Jesus has in mind the banquet at the end of time, the great messianic feast as the Bible talks about it. Do you know that the Bible talks about eternity as a feast? It's not going to be sitting on clouds and playing harps and eating Philadelphia. It's going to be a feast. But the master of the banquet invites the people you might expect, or the world might expect. People like the Pharisees, you know, the moral people, the upstanding people, the important people. And he sends out his servant to invite them. But instead of enthusiastically accepting, they make excuses. Some of these excuses are reminiscent of what you do in the Old Testament to escape military service. Right? So it's almost like, you know, in Britain you'd sort of chop your leg off or something, wouldn't you? So I'd say, I'd rather do that than come to your banquet. Because there's nothing really urgent, is there, that actually means that they can't come. You know, a field can wait, can't it? A, a cow can wait. Even a wife can wait. They're just excuses, aren't they, that they're giving? The last one doesn't even bother to say, please excuse me. How rude. But we're very good at making excuses, aren't we? Especially when it comes to doing what uh, God wants us to do. We don't call them excuses, though. We call them reasons, don't we? And they tend to go hand in hand with what we actually want to do. But it exposes in our hearts, doesn't it, that we're still rebels. And in the same way, the Pharisees had not accepted Jesus' invitation they didn't want to do what God wanted them to do. Instead, they tried to get round it. In their hearts of hearts, they didn't love him. They didn't love Jesus. Which meant they didn't love God. They come up with excuses, haven't they, not to follow Jesus, not to love Jesus. He doesn't keep the Sabbath like we do. Doesn't wash his hands like we do. Keeps telling us things we don't want to hear. But in the end, they're just excuses. I wonder what yours were this morning if you're a Christian. What kept you from becoming a Christian? What were your excuses that you made for not coming to Christ? If you're not a Christian this morning, I wonder what's keeping you. Is it a genuine reason or is it an excuse? And the master is rightfully angry, isn't he? They've done the equivalent of, I can't come on washing my hair to him. Tells you what they think about the person inviting them. He sends out his servants now instead to the outcasts, to the people who you wouldn't invite to your meals. See, God here is not playing politics, is he? He just wants people to enjoy the feast. 
He invites the poor, the lame, the blind. God does what he asks us to do. He's no hypocrite. That was the Pharisees, wasn't it? And there's still space. All these people come in, and he sends out his servant again, even further afield, bringing anyone and everyone that will come. Make them come. Don't take no for an answer. When God calls us, he doesn't take no for an answer. What's the reason here? Well, he wants a full feast. He wants many, 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 many people to enjoy his kindness and hospitality. And who is it that he invites? Those who can never repay him. He's the giver, isn't he, God? We are the recipients of his kindness. God's kindness to us comes with no paybacks. It's what we call grace. And here even he will overcome our foolish whims to compel us to come, that we might enjoy his feast. But there's a singing the tale here too as well, in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Who doesn't get in? Well, those who had the invite at first. Those who made excuses. Now, in the context of this story, it's the dinner party guests, isn't it? It's the people that are actually in front of Jesus as he speaks. Could you imagine Jesus telling this at a dinner party? That would be awkward, wouldn't it? But this is a warning to them. You can't keep caring more about precepts than people. You can't keep caring more about position than piety. You can't keep caring more about politics than the poor and still expect to make it to the banquet. It's not going to happen. And these are not evil men, as we understand that term often, is it? They're normal, moral men and women. They were the shining lights of their society. That's what the word Pharisee means, shining ones. Maybe that's you this morning, a shining moral light. Moral, but more interested in good morals than God himself. You see, really, they were moral, but it it just exposed their hearts, didn't it? They used their morality to get what they really wanted. Acknowledgement, advancement, a sense of moral superiority. Is there a danger that we could use our faith in the same way to meet our own ends? Is there a danger that we use Christianity to get what we really want from life rather than letting Jesus change our priorities? If that's true, then we're being like Pharisees. Whether that goal is national renewal or just the natural rewards in this life. Our faith in Jesus is not meant to be the means to an end. Our end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Actually, all the glory goes back to God. Enjoy him now and enjoy him at the banquet that's to come. And a life that's lived with that in mind will be a shining light, but not like the Pharisees. A life that's really changed by Jesus. That sort of life can change lives, can't it? And morals and maybe even a nation. But it starts in here, doesn't it? It starts with us. As we acknowledge our position before God. So let's pray that God would shrink that little Pharisee inside of us until it disappears and give us strength to love people, to love real holiness and to love the disadvantaged and the downtrodden. So let's pray that God would do that.